HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Gallant, CEO of Chamberlain Coffee, the brainchild of YouTube phenomenon, Emma Chamberlain, that sells directly to consumers and in about 5,000 retail locations. Since joining in the fall of 2021, Chris has led Chamberlain through two fundraises, executed countless new product launches, and helped work hand-in-hand with Emma in developing and executing Chamberlain Coffee's strategy. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I took me, everyone, I got caught up on the word phenomenon a few times as I was doing the intro, but I mean, she is a phenomenon, so there's no other word to use to describe Emma. Um, But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about what you were doing um, before you joined. Um, And for context, I just want to start off by saying that I think you know, I, I get to do a lot of research before I do these interviews. And I think what is particularly cool is that I actually knew about Chamberlain Coffee and I did not know who Emma was. And I think largely that's in part to um, that team knowing to bring in someone like you with a lot of strategic and commercial expertise um, to join forces with, you know, someone a founder who's a creative. So tell me a little bit about your strategic and commercial expertise. Yeah, let's see. Uh, Thank you. Um, I've I've been in the beverage industry now for about 15 years. Um, Prior to that, I was a consultant with Bain & Company and did a lot of work for consumer goods companies. Uh, My largest uh, client was 
a brewery uh, that I, I left Bain and went to work for, and we, we did a couple of deals together, um, mostly in Latin America, mm-hmm. and really spent a lot of time assessing you know, the commercial viability of the brands that they had, of the company we were acquiring. So mm-hmm. that's really where I got my start um, in, uh, in beverages and in sort of commercial expertise uh, within the beverage realm. And you know, from there, I opened up my own brewery thinking I knew- Oh, you know, fun. Every, yeah, everything there was to know about uh, the brewery industry. But when you do it on uh, the scale of a startup versus a multinational, it's very different. So yes, learned it is. the entire other side <laughs> of the business, which was great. We did that for about seven years and I sold my stake in that and um, you know, moved west to California and have been you know, working in a couple of different spaces. I spent some time in energy with Red Bull. Mm-hmm. I worked in kombucha for a while. And mm-hmm. now I'm here uh, leading Chamberlain Coffee with Emma. Amazing. So for those of you who don't know, like I announced uh, me, squarely a Gen Xer and, um, you know, kind of embarrassingly so, uh, what I read is pretty amazing. Emma started posting in high school. Uh, She posted what my high school students would post if they were posting, you know, content like this. Just what she's doing, where she's eating, what she's eating. She's always loved coffee. She now has, I believe, over 12 million. Is that right, Chris? I think it's a little higher, but yeah, it's a big number. Yeah, Lots of millions of YouTube subscribers. And then obviously her content um, has sort of, you know, also transitioned over to the other social media sites and super, super resonated with Gen Z. And then um, especially, and in 2019, she launched these single serve coffee bags that were like tea. Um, and it really took off like gangbusters. Um, it looks like one thing I wanted to ask you. So that in and of itself seems like a pretty big innovation to me. And I don't, what everything I've read that part, the, the idea of really channeling into quick and easy, not all about my four-hour grinding process of a millennial, but more tuning into, I really want this. I want it to be yummy and fun, and I don't want it to take a lot of time of a Gen Z. That doesn't get as much credit as I feel like it should. Just that first foray into innovating in coffee. What do you think? Absolutely. As we think about our consumers now in hindsight, right? Yes, convenience is is one of the biggest things that they look for uh, in a coffee brand. Emma had that insight when she launched that as as her first product. And I think that insight combined with the real authenticity of her and this brand worked well, right? If you think about all the videos she had prior to starting this company, so many of them talked about coffee. And so when she launched this, it really felt authentic to the audience because it was. Yeah. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's It's been really, I've, I had a really fun weekend listening and reading. And by the way, just doing all of that just to get ready for today. And hopefully so, drinking lots of coffee too. I mean, coffee. the thing is, is, you know, I'm one of those people who I'm like, if I have a coffee afternoon, I'm like up at 4 a.m., like squarely menopausal. It's awful. <laughs> I'm not her... I'm not her target audience, I don't think, Chris. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm somewhere in between Gen X and Millennial myself, but I. Uh, You're a geriatric Millennial. I love that term. I love that expression. But I've always been a five coffee a day guy, so this, oh this job worked out well for me. Perfect. Um, yes. So then, in 2020, 
the brand went through somewhat of a rebrand, a refresh, introduced characters, a lot of color, um, you know, kind of looks more like the brand that we know today. And then you came shortly thereafter in 2021. Give me a little bit of sort of like what was happening, what inflection points, what were the big decisions or the big the big opportunities, challenges? They had the insight to, to bring you in. What was your mandate when you started? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you go back to 2019, that, you know, the one product that she released took off like crazy. And I think right. that was a clear indicator like, hey, there's there's something here. And so they brought in a venture studio uh, and that venture studio, along with uh, UTA Ventures, helped Emma really build out, okay, like what what other products do we want to create? What we want to say about coffee as a brand? What do we want to say about ourselves as a brand? And they built out a, a full portfolio of beans mm-hmm. and single serve uh, and then started with some teas uh, on D to C. And as I came in, um, you know, the focus was on a couple of things. One, it was, you know, thinking about how do we continue to grow this amazing set of products we have, these core products and these core channels? How do we think about expanding to new channels uh, and acquire new consumers that way? Mm-hmm. And, and what do we do with innovation? Because one of the most exciting things to me about the category is that, you know, as big as it is and as old as it is, it's evolving tremendously mm-hmm. with, with Gen Z. And they're thinking about new ways to consume coffee. You yeah. know, if you look at Starbucks, for example, 70% of their drinks are, are cold and they're mm-hmm. retrofitting all their cafes to be centered around cold drinks. Right. So there's this big opportunity for innovation. So the mandate for me was really, you know, grow what we have, but think about new channels, innovation. How do we grow even bigger, acquire new customers uh, and come up with amazing new products? And was it, you know, I was listening, so there's this, There, I mean, some people say it's slowing down. I don't know. I'm not close enough to sort of the creator-led brand thing. Um, but for sure, there's been an acceleration of content creators realizing that they can go beyond merch, that they can go beyond, you know, selling other people's brands and developing their own. Um, there have been clearly a couple of outliers that have done incredibly well. Emma is one of them. Um, some of them have been more thoughtful than others. But the risk is always that if a creator does something problematic or loses steam or their audience just doesn't feel like what you were talking about, that connection between their content and the brand, um, that that it's almost, you know, um, there's like a live by the sword, die by yeah. the sword, almost idea. Um, but was there a very clear discussion when you got there? Like, let's create a brand that stands alone that even if someone like me, who's never heard of Emma or isn't watching her videos that like th- these, this brand can be something that, that stands apart from her, I would imagine that would be something she would also want. Yeah. You know, if you think about celebrity brands, whether there's too much or whether it's growing or shrinking, I think about picking the right partner. And I think as long as you pick the right partner, there's always going to be opportunity there. Right. And and what does that mean for us? I think it's finding someone for whom 
the brand has and the product has authenticity. And we've, we've talked about that, right? And I think that really works for us. I think it's finding someone who's committed and willing to put in the time. And it's, it's not just the time about making a post, but it's everything on the back end of meeting with retailers, helping think about marketing strategy, helping think about product strategy. Um, there's a lot that goes on in the back end that consumers don't see. So you've got to find a partner that's willing to do that. Um, and then also um, you got to find someone who's, you know, continuing to grow their audience, you know, outside of the brand um, and is, um, and expanding themselves. And I think, you know, we found all three with Emma and she's been a great partner for, for this brand. I mean, she is the, the founder of it and a huge driving force. That being said, you know, I think the goal of any celebrity brand is always right to be able to grow beyond that audience and to grow to a broader audience of people. And so one of the things we did when we set that out with Emma is say like over time, you know, how do we make this brand truly stand on its own? So for us, it was, you know, bright colors, creating character stories, mm-hmm. um, being able to tell the story of the brand without having that intrinsic link forever. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Emma too, you know, which is really fun to read again, since I kind of came to it like a blank slate, like there are a couple of things that she said in interviews that I think you can literally see the through line to the brand today. Number one, the idea of the cans as an accessory, right? That is very Gen Z. It's not something that someone my age would necessarily think of. Obviously, liquid death is very much an accessory, I've definitely heard of sort of like more fashion people coming into this um, category. I mean, we're going to get to the RTD launch in general later, but the idea of what you carry being a symbol of something, it, it feels more resonant with her generation right now than it has been maybe for a while. Um, so I think that's very cool for her to have that insight and then figure out how to take that into strategy with the colors and the characters. And then the other thing is this sort of idea that coffee can be intimidating and snobby. Um, and she was really dead set on creating something that wasn't. And you do feel that there it's a very, it's like a, it's a friendlier, happier coffee brand. Um, And I'm just curious, I guess, what the process is like when, when she comes with an insight, you know, how to, I guess, how do you build out the strategy based on those insights? Because it is clear that she's not just posting stuff. It is clear that she's really thinking about it. And I guess, you know, from the operator perspective, from your perspective, you know, how do you take those insights and turn them into sort of strategies? Yeah, I think that um, there, there's a lot of communication with our consumers. And so one of, uh, one of the best parts of having such high engagement rates is consumers will tell you exactly what they think. And so we spend a lot of time talking to our consumers and saying, um, you know, what do you want to see next from us? What mm-hmm. flavor would you like? What product would you like? And Sometimes, you know, consumers will tell you what you want. Sometimes you have to, you have to figure that out to really right. be on the cutting edge. And so it's a mix of, you know, seeing what the trends are, speaking to consumers, getting the insights uh, from Emma and from everyone around us. And 
saying, all right, let's let's think about how do we take this to market? Is this something we go right to retail with? Because, you know, it, we think it's a, a good enough bet, which we did with RTD, mm-hmm. uh, the ready to drink product. Or is yeah. it something maybe we, we want to test out online first and have a, um, a smaller set of consumers like we did with some um, matcha latte mixes? Mm-hmm. There's a couple of different approaches uh, depending on how how confident we feel in the ability of a product to take off from the start. Um, but you know, to your point about the aesthetic of the brand, yes, we you know we spend a lot of time thinking about people holding this product and feeling mm-hmm. proud of it, and you know that goes back to you know a, a lot of the brands I've worked for in the past. I, I don't know if it's new with Gen Z, maybe they're doing it a different way, but people have always liked to. Yeah, uh, badge themselves with a product. Whether you know, I worked for Heineken for a while. I worked for Red Bull for a while. That brand, those brands, really mean something to the consumers that carry yeah. them. And I think Chamberlain Coffee means something different, but it's something we we definitely focus on. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like yes, in a way, you know, that's what a brand is. It's you know, who do I want to be when I'm holding this thing, or when someone sees me sitting on the train with this bag, or right. you know, yes. It makes total sense. And yet I feel like lately it's almost like gotten hyper jacked up, you know, with, and I, I mean, I have three Gen Z daughters Mm -hmm. um, and there, there was a moment I think where it was almost like more minimal and maybe I don't want to be identified as a brand person, you know, and that kind of seems to have flipped in the last couple of years again. My guess is it comes in waves, but it does really feel like um, there's more than ever, you know, even just like brands that are snacks or grocery stores having merch and pocketbooks and, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's definitely this sort of like brand thing happening. Um I don't know. Do you think, do you have insight into that that can explain it? Or am I just feeling something and feeling older? Well, I think, I think there's a lot more opportunities to, to badge yourself right now mm-hmm. with a brand, uh, with social media. And so I think right. you're right in that people are, you know, finding ways to do that differently and maybe more frequently than they have in the past, which is why we, we really, uh, spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about things like typeface, mm-hmm. things like our characters, our colors. We, you know, we focus a lot on that so people can be proud of what they're holding. Yeah. I mean, there might also be sort of this like lipstick economy, you know, thing where like Gen Z is not particularly optimistic about the economy, the political situation. They're the first generation that sort of feels like their prospects maybe are a little bit um, less appealing than the generation before them. And, you know, a can or a bag or a a sweatshirt can signal something bigger without you having to worry about buying a house. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like these little points of differentiation and little comforts and little things that make you, you know, again, who do you feel like when you hold that thing? And maybe there's something to that too. I think Um, so. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about cans and hands. It's like my favorite expression. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Chris Gallant, uh, CEO of Chamberlain Coffee. Um, okay, so a couple things. I remember, I don't know if you remember, but uh, there was a whole chanting, retail is dead going on for a <laughs> while. It started a little bit in 2019. It got really, really loud during the pandemic. I'm not sure that everyone realized what a COVID bump we were living in. Um, but I know that you are always and have always been a believer about retail for beverage just as a whole. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about that, because my guess is that that then if your mandate is to come in and think about new channels and new products, my guess is you were pretty keen on getting into retail and having a ready to drink. So tell me about that. Yeah, 100 percent that, you know. We are. We were absolutely living in a COVID bump, and I think the data is borne out that um, you know D to C is not going away, but it's you know reverting to the mean growth trend that we saw pre-COVID. And so, we'll always have faithful customers online, and we always want to serve them, and they'll have first Something access mm-hmm. to yeah to special products, to new products, to seasonal things that we just can't put in retail. Mm -hmm. But as you think about the buying behavior of where people are returning to, right, where they, where they were before, it's it's largely at retail. And, uh, you know, maybe there's some components of Amazon Fresh uh, or uh, Instacart, but largely when people people buy coffee, they are buying it on their ritual weekly or biweekly shopping trip. Mm -hmm. And so, in order for us to be, you know, in their um, in their set of coffee options they want to buy, we need to be on the shelf at retail. Right. And so we are pushing hard to to make that happen. We're partnering with national chains like Walmart and Target mm-hmm. and Albertsons um, and Whole Foods and Sprouts to get our coffee products out there um, and into the consideration set for consumers. Yeah. And you started. As, as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you started with the ready-to-drink in Walmart. We, we had started with Erewhon and Sprouts with our bag products, and they've, they've been great partners with us for over a year. Okay. Um, but then we launched uh, big with a ready-to-drink uh, set of canned coffees in Walmart uh, earlier this year. And we have some new ones coming out later this year. Amazing. I want to hear about Walmart. I want to hear about it because I can't, it's like the word bubble of CPG lately 
you know, it used to be just like, shh, no, no, no. Like, wait, wait, wait. You know, you, you've mm-hmm. got to be years old. And you, I mean, for you, it's a little different because you do have the awareness and that is a big component of it. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding and, and the last episode that just aired, so this is going to be a couple weeks later, was with a Walmart broker who had me totally drinking the Kool-Aid by the time he was done, embracing innovation, good margins for the brands. You know, you don't get eaten alive by all these hidden marketing costs that you don't know about. Um, and then I was listening to another discussion, and it was with Andrea from Snackshot, and she was talking about how basically, again, Gen Z is like... Walmart's the new kith, I believe is what she said. It's, you know, how many selfies can you take at Walmart, you know, getting access to these sort of like creator-led brands and picking up cool things. Like somehow Walmart got cool is, I don't know. Um, But it's still a massive retailer and you have to be able to handle it. So I'd love your thoughts on launching with them. I'd love what maybe was a nice surprise. And I'd love you to offer anybody listening, the operators and the founders out there, some caveats. Yeah, I I guess I'd start off and say, look, they've been a tremendous partner for us to launch nationwide with. And they've, they've really spent a lot of time to the conversation you just noted earlier. They've spent a lot of time over the past, you know, five to seven years thinking about how do they get out ahead of the trends. Uh, and that doesn't just mean getting the right brands, but really restructuring how mm-hmm. they work internally uh, with small brands. Yeah. And so they've been a great partner for us. We were a little nervous going into it because it's the largest grocer in the country. Yeah, and, 25% of groceries right. are sold. And the and, next and, biggest is Costco at 8 Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we've had... Uh, we, we were nervous in being able to supply, being able to support, um, margin profiles. We were nervous about everything, but you know they've been a great partner in a few ways. I think one um, is they've really been um, willing to work with us on margins as we grow, right? And as we think about, you know, how do we how do we get a new product to shelf quickly for them, mm-hmm. um, and and not lose our shirts doing it. So they've been mm-hmm. great. There, they've been a great partner at helping us through their system because when you work with a yeah. chain as large as them, um, it's it's heavy. There's there's a lot of heavy lifting to do, and they've been a great partner there, uh, and they've been a great partner at uh, helping to promote us. Amazing. And so um, for us, it's been a really positive experience working with the Walmart team. And I, you know, I think you know the the caveat is really you've got to have your supply chain in line to. Mm-hmm supply something this big because the product can, can move quickly um, when you're selling in this many stores, um, yep. especially if you have a nationwide reach like we do. And so being sure to have your your whole supply chain really short up uh, ahead of that launch is critical. And what about, you know, sort of they're the old, again, I think a lot of this is anachronistic at this point, but there's still the sort of the other retailers don't want to play with you if you're at Walmart, because it means that, you know, they're not getting the, 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 whatever. And have you found any resistance or does everyone just kind of want it because 
A, it's great. B, it looks great. C, they, you've got this built-in, you know, audience. Yeah, there was, you know, one chain who I won't mention that didn't want a product because we had it in in Walmart before. But Mm -hmm. other than that, everyone else has been excited um, to to be the next in line to get our ready to drink product uh, and to get our bad coffee on shelf. Um, It hasn't really been a detractor uh, for us in terms of next steps on retail. Uh, If anything, it's really helped accelerate it. That's awesome. That's good to hear. And then speaking of those two different categories, so the RTD is a whole beast of its own. There's a lot of, there's a lot of drinks right now. There's, I mean, it was super competitive. I remember I interviewed, oh my gosh, this was like, I'm, I'm trying to remember what her name's Grace and I forget what she worked for, but basically it was like all, she just kept putting her elbows out. I was interviewing in person and she was sitting in the chair and just, I remember just like, she was just like throwing her elbows out, like throughout the whole conversation, basically like that's beverage. Like you got to just have your elbows out. You got to like guard your space. You got to go back in after you've merchandised because someone's come in and merchandised after you and moved you over to the side. Super competitive, expensive. Um, but then you're also in on the shelf in, you know, next to Folgers, I would imagine. Like, I don't even know what the coffee set looks like at this point. I order on Amazon. But is that are are there two different buyers? How have you found the synergies there? Is that challenging on the team? Those yeah, I, um, I think from yes, this is a short answer. I think from you know the the biggest synergy really is the brand synergy, right, and the ability to talk about having products in both categories. I think our our beans will always be the core of our business as we're a coffee mm-hmm. company. Right. And will really drive a lot of brand awareness for us. I think ready to drink is the faster growing category. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a lot of effort there. From an ops perspective, there is almost zero overlap, right? Mm-hmm. From a, you know, from supply chain. So it's really like running two entirely separate supply chains. Yeah. When you start to get to downstream and getting into retail, they start to merge a little bit. But it's really like you're running two separate businesses. Um, and then from a sales perspective, there's, you know, there's some overlap, but there's always different buyers for dry uh, right. and for um, and for ready to drink. So um, I think it works for us largely because of the brand piece. Everything else is uh, everything else is a challenge. Right. And so when you got there, going back to sort of you coming in, what did the team look like, and what does it look like now? Oh, great question. So when you know when we started, it was you know it was small. It was um, I think two two or three people in ops um, and one person in ecom. When mm-hmm. I joined, we've really expanded it. And it's to focus largely on those other areas we talked about. So going into retail and going into um, and going into ready to drinks. And so we've expanded our operations theme because it just like I said is an entirely different supply chain. So that's been mm-hmm. a lot of work on them. Uh, and then we've expanded our retail team as well to do sales into. Uh, and then alongside that, we've uh, grown the marketing team as well to be focused on um, uh, largely on retail launches, which is very different than promoting. Yeah. Online. You know, we were just talking about that today because we were talking. So 
everyone who listens to me regularly knows that we are launching into a shelf-stable category next year Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the year. Very exciting. Again, totally different supply chain. Hopefully, we'll have some synergies on some raw materials. But other than that, it's just two different businesses, basically. We have seen that because of our success with the Fresh line, we are getting more attention and a little more internal sort of like, hey, we like working with this company. You might like working with this company too, sort of between our category merchants at retailers. We're hoping that it goes the other way too because likely the shelf stable line will be bigger than the fresh line pretty quickly. Um, But what we were talking about today was this is the first time we've ever been able to even contemplate a shipper. We've never, mm-hmm. we've never had a shipper. <laughs> we've always been refrigerated. I mean, it's like a dream to be able to just like put a stack of something near the bread or, you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah, that's, it's huge, right? To be able to have multiple points of interruption. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And we were like, we don't actually, arguably that's sort of a marketing function. No one really on our marketing team you know, we've, we don't have that capacity. We have a lot of amazing people who learn as we go and have figured out how to make danglers and clip strips and how to do aisle campaigns and how to support retail. But we don't have someone with a ton of in-store retail marketing experience. Um, And that feels like I don't know. Tell me if you feel this way too. I feel like a couple of years ago, everyone was looking for like their growth marketer. Everyone was looking for their like D to C person who could, who could manage the ad spend. And now I feel like everyone's trying to figure out who are the people that really understand what works in a retail environment. Um, and so I'm curious how you have do you have separate people selling in to the separate categories and separate people sort of leading the merchandising efforts? Is it one person with a team below them? Like how have you structured that? So we have um, a single sales team selling in, into both categories. Um, but as I thought about who to hire for the head of sales and who to bring on for um, our head of marketing, I was pretty clear we needed people in those roles who have sold into retail. So for right. you know, for our CMO, I brought on someone I had worked with at Red Bull before. Um, and for our head of sales, I brought in someone that's worked with Liquid IV, both, you know, brands that do very well at retail, mm-hmm. um, you know, because it's, it's very different, right, than selling online. Um, and, you know, one of our first hires after our CMO as well was a, a retail marketing manager to to help get creative and think about what we can do differently at retail. Cause it's not just about getting um, a shipper uh, on the floor, but it's about being creative. Um, you know, some of my, like one of my favorite examples, this was mm-hmm. years ago, but uh, during the summer, uh, Ziploc did uh, big shippers in the meat aisle, right? Because that's mm-hmm. when everybody's barbecuing and yep. um, marinating their meats and things like that out of the box where we can just drive, not just incremental sales, but double or triple sales yeah. uh, in a category. No, totally. I mean, that's how it's, it's interesting because I've always been, I've always been a condiment. Um, I mean, I'm, I have always had a product that goes on or in to other things. And so with a refrigerated sauce, 
you know, we we can try to get into meat bunkers with our chimichurri and we try to get our like ginger miso into the salmon case if we can. But it's very onesie twosie. And as you know, you know, the meat buyer is like not that interested in having a cross category conversation mm-hmm. when they don't get the they don't get the ring. Um, but with, you know, these these shelf stable things, I feel like we could just like run around and put them (laughs) everywhere, (laughs) you know, like, and, you know, of course we're thinking, you know, they're, they're, you know, really great for picnics because, you know, they're in, they're in pouches like our other fresh sauces and they're really good to put on sandwiches and really even good on like tater tots and things like that. So can we put a shipper near the frozen potatoes? Can we put a shipper near the bread? You know, like, all of a sudden, I mean, it's really like the world is opening up and I don't even know what's allowed. Um, but we're going to, we're going to find out probably after we get told no. Yeah. Some, some guerrilla marketing, see what gets ripped down. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, and so the sales team, the marketing team, the ops team, what do you feel like is your next you know, foray, I guess, on, in terms of building the team and having the expertise there. Is there anything that you feel like, you know, there's a there's a gap that will be filled? Because my guess is that it's just a natural transition from a, you know, that everyone is probably experiencing right now as they're growing. Yeah, I think the the biggest gap for us as we grow is finance. Um, we have mm-hmm. a fractional CFO now, and, and she's mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, and I just need more and more of her time every week. And yep. so I think as we look towards the next year um, of our growth, that's probably going to be a gap that we need filled on a on a full time basis. Um, not just because of sort of supply chain and, and you know book close, but you know and cash management, but really mm-hmm. thinking strategically about how do we allocate capital um, over yeah. the next twelve to twenty four months. I mean, that's such a good topic to bring up, and and we don't really talk about it enough. I've had a couple of I, probably more fractional CFOs come on. I think the thing is, is that it's such an expensive function. Because you need that one person who's got all of that sort of Mac Daddy experience, but then they're not doing, you know, chances are they're not doing the UNFI bill back calls and they're probably not, you know, maybe they are, but unlikely they're closing the books every month and also doing sort of strategic cash management. You know, it feels like once you bring in that person, they either like to then work with an outsourced person model, which works again, but for smaller companies, it's hard, or they want to hire their team. It's like it, it's a slippery slope with finance, I feel like. Yeah, I think you said it right. You're hiring a function, not a person. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot that will come along with that. Um, and they're not directly revenue driving, which is always, is always a hard decision at a small company to hire yeah. uh, folks that aren't tied to marketing sales or, or operations. You know, when we um, we made a move uh, with our outsourced CFO, I think that's how you and I met. And I mean, I would it, it has saved us so much money. It, I mean, the, our current outsourced is who you and I 
you know, I haven't moved from them. I moved to them (laughs) just so you know that I wasn't like, yeah, you should definitely. And then I moved, but, um, I, it's, I mean, it really can, when someone is in your business and it's not just like looking at this model, you know, and they can, they're, they're telling you, you know, what your orders look like, what they need to look like, what your cash situation is like, they're helping build the demand plan. So, you know, exactly what you're going to, I know exactly what I'm going to be spending between now and March of next year, just ramping up for this new category you know, it's just a to- totally different experience when there is someone who's who's really like in in the business doing that finance function. Um, and it's funny too because I think I mentioned this on a pod like a, a couple months ago. I remember I interviewed a woman from Force Brands, Erin, on this show, and again, it was like a couple years ago they could not find sales and marketing people quick enough. Like everyone was coming to recruiters for sales and marketing. Everyone was coming for like e-com marketing experts. And in the last year, it's really been finance and ops. Like I think the way of the economy and sort of the way of the venture community is the way of our hiring patterns a little bit. You know, people are realizing that they might not be selling, but they are definitely saving. And when the focus is on margin, it makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Right. As, as I talk to the venture community, the conversations have turned from a discussion about a path to profitability to one about unit economics in current mm-hmm. state. And so I think having someone overseeing the financials there. Um, is tremendously helpful. So let's talk a little bit about fundraising because you've done it a few times and you've done it very successfully. I guess I'm curious, a lot of founders say to me that their conversations with VCs are, we want you to get profitable. We want you to have a strong contribution margin. We want you to innovate. We want you to grow. And a lot of them are a little bit like something's got to give a little bit. And I guess what is your advice generally? You know, I was going to ask you for advice on that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, and that's, it's hard, right? It, it's hard because um, there's absolutely um, a, a shift. Like we just talked about from growth at all costs to one around um, unit economics and profitability but they still want to see the growth. Um, and so they're, they're ha- you have to find the right balance. Uh, and I don't know if there's a, a silver bullet to that, um, yeah. but you have to find the right balance of, of growth uh, and of, if not immediate profitability, a very clear path in, in sort of 12 to 18 months on, on profitability in order to get people excited right now. Yeah, I mean, I really, I don't want... I really don't want people to stop innovating. I feel like the world really needs people to innovate and they need it right now more than ever. So I'm sort of, you know, like, yes, absolutely. Find points of margin, kill skews that aren't working. Don't, 
you know, leave retailers that aren't working with your current assortment. It's better to have three super profitable SKUs in retailers where you're actually making money and do that math, but don't take the pedal off of trying to innovate because I feel like that's when people die on the vine or brands do. Right. And innovation and trial uh, is not cheap. So it will require, continue to require capital to do it right. effectively. Yeah. I mean, we literally, we're, we're right now, we're sort of planning Q4 and in this, like our leadership sort of, you know, three day, a quarter thing. And we're talking about, okay, well, if we want to do a new category in 2025, that means that we've got to start talking to our retail partners mid 2024, which means that come January, we need to start R&D. And, you know, I'm like, I just need to catch my breath because come January, we're going to be launching a whole new thing. <laughs> like, you know, and it, it's, it's money, you know, on something that you don't know is going to work. I guess maybe you just have to have a lot of conviction around what you're innovating. You have to have a lot of conviction, but also uh, a cash cushion, because to your point, if you're innovating now for product that you're going to sell in mid 25 that, that's mm-hmm. a long payback period. Yeah, I don't think people, I think what's interesting is like people talk about CPG. It, when I explain that there are 20 million, 30 million, 50 million, even more dollar brands that are doing that much in revenue that are not profitable yet, people outside of this industry look at me like, come again? You know, I mean, forget about tech, mm-hmm. right? I could be like, well, look at Uber and Amazon, like, right? I mean, and they're like that, but that isn't the same thing. Like they're, and so I'm like, okay, that's true. So it is kind of interesting. I don't think anyone getting into it realizes just how long the cycle is to actually make money. <laughs> right. It's it's very long. And uh, from product development to packaging development to, you know, promo planning, getting on shelf, it, you know, it can be 18 months. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. We've talked about team. I want to talk a little bit about marketing because I think that while clearly from a content perspective, Emma is building a ton of awareness. Um that's just the first part. And what you all have been able to do is really get that, you know, I like it when I talk in like middle of the funnel and like bottom of the funnel, repeat and engagement. And I think a lot of that has to do with that community building outside of her. Um, And so I'd like to hear about some of those initiatives. Like I love this little artist series. You know, I love the monthly subscription thing. Like, tell me about some of the things that you guys have done, you know, once people are in the door. And that's the thing about a lot of, I mean, someone wrote on LinkedIn the other day, like people, you know, consumers today care more about the packaging than they do the product. And there was a lot of response, like for the first purchase, yes, but it doesn't build a loyal consumer base. And then you're always just basically like paying to try to acquire new people. So what are the things that you guys have like concretely focused on once they're in to keep them? Yeah, it's much cheaper to to keep a consumer. You're right. And to do that, I think the first thing is you've got to have great product because 
people will come in and explore uh, because we have a really great brand, but they won't come back if the product isn't good. So we spend a lot of time on product. And I, I think beyond that, we spend you know a lot of time creating community, right? To use your 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 phrase, right? And it's whether it's the artist series or whether it's the way we communicate with consumers through email, through SMS, through social media. We try to keep people engaged, excited about the brand. We'll do things like one of my favorite collaborations we did was a um, a sparkle maple syrup with uh, <clears throat> with a company I know from Vermont. Um, it wasn't it wasn't a big launch you know we mm-hmm. didn't make a lot of money on it but you know it really surprised our consumers and they were you know excited about it so keeping them coming back for fun different things mm-hmm. um whether that's social media or products is how we like to to engage them and have you figured that out yet in store like no <laughs> no <yeah. laughs> how, how do we do yeah. LTOs, no. I mean, we're, we're really just getting our feet under us with refill at the moment. Yeah, um, I no, think it's once, yeah once we've had a few cycles through there, we're, we're doing we're doing a special LTO uh, with one of our retail partners this fall. It'll be really the, the first big one we've done. Um, but once we've had a few cycles with retail, we'll start introducing limited time products in. Yeah, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to do retail LTOs. Like we talk about them as something really cool. I interviewed um, Ari Raz from Coconut Cult and I love their model. Like they make their own yogurt. So it's definitely a shorter supply chain and they can kind of, you know, ours takes a long time either way. Um, But basically they work with different creators and different brands to do collabs. And those collabs are exclusively D to C and they're basically de-risking it for retailers. So when they work, you know, they're kind of able to unleash that power into retail. Um, and a couple of brands do it. I just, there's this, they're a little, um, I don't know, circle of love is very obvious and very clear. Um, But, you know, for those of us with like much longer supply chains and, you know, I don't know, LTOs are hard in retail. I'm not sure they're ever going to work for us. But I do think that there's an unlock somewhere. And I think aisle is a part of it and social natures is, is mm-hmm. a part of it. But, you know, there's still this world of opportunity connecting sort of the digital experience with the retail execution. Um, have you seen anything that's, that are, are any of your retail partners or is any, has, has anything worked for you guys where you're like, huh, there seems to be like something happening between what's happening online and what's happening in store. Are they still two very separate worlds for you? I think we're experimenting with it still, how to, how to drive people to store via social media. And I think what we found so far is you know, product launches get people excited. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one way to do it. Um, and then we've also been experimenting with Isle and with some other um, apps like that where we can get people in store to sample, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, cans and hands is the term you used earlier, right? And so without a, you know, a huge sampling force like, like I had at Red Bull, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the ways we can do that is through um, digital couponing. And so we're experimenting right. with that. I think the jury's out on whether it'll work for us, but um, we're, we're trying it to see you know, how, how our consumers like to receive that opportunity. Yeah. And speaking of 
how is, I mean, I, I don't know really anything. I've heard, you know, iOS and it's expensive. You know, I'm not an expert in any way on D2C, but what are your sort of thoughts for those of us out there that have had challenges in that channel over the last year plus? Are you just kind of like, all right, this is the new cost of doing business and that's why we got to figure out other channels? Do you think that things are easing up? Are there ways to kind of like, quote unquote, hack the system a little bit so that you can eke out a little bit more margin there? What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are you're not alone, right? I mean, I think everyone is struggling right now uh, or not not struggling, but everyone is not seeing the growth they, they saw two years ago in DTC. Mm-hmm. And part of it is through... You know, privacy updates. Part of it, though, I think is also due to what we talked about earlier, people going back into retail and changing their shopping behaviors. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think what we're trying to do from our side is, is figure out a different playbook of, you know, how do we think about D2C going forward? Because, you know, the, the playbook everyone used two years ago just doesn't work the same way. So how do we get consumers excited? Is that through product launches? Yeah. Um, is that through... Um, unique and special content. Um, what do we? What can we do to get our consumers continue to continue to be excited about about D two C? Because it's a channel that um, was uh, our only business, and it's still really the core of our business. Yeah, I I've mentioned this on the show a couple of times too, and I am so lame. I totally forget his name and also the podcast that he was on. So you're welcome. (laughs) But like the guy that who ran the D to C business at general mills was on a podcast. And all I remember was like, he talked about the gold box of Wheaties. There were like, they're like a couple of gold boxes of Wheaties a couple of times a year. Like general mills sells a, a gazillion dollars worth of things in retail. They are not looking to like make D to C a substantial chunk of their, you know, business. But for the diehards, for the people who absolutely love Wheaties, they have this like gold box in like a, in a, in a glass dome or something that you can enter into to win. It it was something like that. I was like, oh, that's smart. You know, it was just one of those things where, I think you said it. It's where the real community comes, where they get special things, whatever that is, access, content, product, opportunity to get something that no one else gets, opportunity to get it first. Um, I guess the question is going to be, is, are the companies that we know going to be investing as much in those sites, or are they going to be investing more in their Amazon channels? Because you know, it, people are already going there. Yeah, it's certainly something we, we think about a lot, not just retail, but, but about Amazon. And um, we love it when people come to our site because they get the full experience of our brand. And we're able to communicate to them directly. That being said, there's a, a large cohort of consumers that only want to shop on Amazon. So mm-hmm. much like retail, if, if we want to connect with these consumers and sell our products to them, then we, we need to be where they are. And so, um, in 2022, we made a big push on Amazon as well, um, to, you know, to be able to reach again, reach our consumers where they want to shop. I think I need to have another, uh, when I interviewed, I got, I think Chris from, uh, I forget it's the amp cartograph. Um, 
I interviewed him and we had no Amazon business. We still have, by the way, no Amazon business. We are going to have an Amazon business when we have a shelf-stable product. Yay. Um, But I don't think I even knew what the hell he was talking about for the most part. So I think I need to have another Amazon person come on. So if you have a good suggestion, send me someone. Okay, last question for you, sir. What is next? What are you thinking about? Are there new categories? Is it just continuing to get this ready to drink into new stores and really innovate on the flavors there? Tell me. Yeah. So we're, you know, I think what's next is twofold. It's a continuation of what we're doing. So there's, you know, more flavors coming out, um, uh, for our ready to drink product. There's more national chains. And so the team is really heads down on, on getting those things out. And then there's a couple of new innovations we're working on for next year as well that are, aren't in, uh, are not in the ready to drink, uh, no canned coffee category. So more to come on that, but we've, you know, we're not taking your eye off the ball on innovation either. Amazing. All right. Well, it's been really, really fun talking to you. I love it. I love the brand. Obviously, I'm a fan. Um, And you're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Liam, thank you for engineering as always. Um, Obviously, I could not do this without you and the folks at Heritage Network. And everyone listening, thank you. As always, um, you just continue to listen and you continue to send me happy notes. And I don't know if you're thinking about sending it and you're like, nah, maybe not. Just send it because I read every single one of them and they do make me happy. So I appreciate it. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.